the Into Wilderness Podcast. I'm your host, Byron Pace. This is episode 220 and a Modern Huntsman production. It is the first episode of 2023, and so I hope that all of you had a fantastic festive period, however you spent it, and uh, are refreshed and looking forward to the year ahead. Now, many of the regular listeners over the last five or six years will be very used to the first episode of the year being with my great friend Sam Thompson, who I actually was just with a couple of days ago. But that's not what you're about to hear. Um, That podcast will come. Uh, We basically just had too much fun (laughs) for the couple of days. And when we came back from hunting or being out during the day, uh, we started cooking and uh, started drinking and being merry. And uh, before I knew it, it was time for me to leave. And we hadn't recorded the podcast, even though I'd taken all of the gear with me. So I'm sorry if that is a disappointment to you, but you will get it. It just will not be this first episode of the year. Um, Sam has been on great form, as always, and full of stories. Uh, actually, right now he's 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 sick with flu in bed. Um, so maybe it wouldn't have been a great time to record it anyway. But uh, yeah, I will go and visit him soon, and I will bring you a podcast with Mr. Sam Thompson, who is beyond doubt the person who has been on this show more than anything else, and is one of the most popular guests I had probably four or five messages in the month of December asking if he was going to be the first guest of the new year, to which I said yes, because that was my plan. Um, But I haven't forgotten, and it will happen. But on this show, I am interviewing Lindsay Burgeon, uh, who I spoke to a couple of weeks ago. She sent me her book, Tree Thieves, a couple of months back, um, and I finally had a chance to, to go through it and had her on the show, which is a world that is going to blow your mind, and I bet you most people will not be aware of the black market in timber that is going on. And I'm not even talking about black market out of like Central America or Central Africa, where I was certainly aware it was happening. I'm talking about North America out of national parks. Her book looks at this billion-dollar timber black market and how it intersects with environmentalism, class, and culture. And we took a whole bunch of other tangents um, from the the history of poaching to being self-sufficient today and what that means in a landscape of modern land ownership. Lindsay is a writer, an oral historian, and a 2018 National Geographic Explorer. It was a fascinating conversation, and I would encourage you to go and get her book if you enjoy the chat that we're just about to have. Quickly, before we get to that, Modern Huntsman Volume 10 is now shipping. If you follow my social media or the Modern Huntsman social media, you will see that this is the volume that is taken inside a rib cage looking out at a wolf, um, taken by a friend and brilliant photographer and filmmaker, Ronan Donovan. Uh, it is packed with incredible stories. You can get uh, a flavor of what is in there if you go to the Modern Huntsman website and you click Volume 10. Uh, you'll get to see some of the imagery, and we have started to post uh, some snippets of the stories over on Instagram as well. So go and check that out, and if you haven't ordered a copy, um, get it ordered now because there's not that many volumes left. Um, And if you're a subscriber, you should hopefully have it in your hands, although I know that for some international subscribers, they only got it like this week. There was a couple of friends of mine uh, who just got it a couple of days ago in the UK. That's partly because of it being shipped from the US and partly because our postal service has sucked for the last um, couple of weeks, uh, as well as it being 
Christmas and New Year. Uh, so you should be getting it any minute now if you're a subscriber. But if not, feel free to reach out um, through the contact form on the Modern Huntsman website, and we will make sure we get it sorted for you. And lastly, before we get into this interview, a shout out to my Patreon supporters who this week include Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Ash Stalking, Dick Ekstromer, and Mark Zabrowski. Thank you so much for your support. You help make this show possible for me to put it out every two weeks. Uh, not in the last three weeks because I took a break over Christmas and New Year like I always do, but normally every two weeks within a day or two, depending on travel and projects that I'm working on. Uh, and if you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. There's a series of tiers and you can support in different ways. Oh, one more thing. Uh, I am very close, very, very, very close to finishing my first feature film, Paid in Blood. Uh, the full hour plus is sitting on a timeline. I've got a little bit of massaging and um, story development to do and a little bit of character to development now that I've got the whole thing together, uh, which I'm working on with um, a couple of friends and people who are brilliant at what they do. Uh, if you would like to support the production, the post-production of that, that is still possible if you head over to byronpace.com, where actually you can see a whole bunch of other things that I have done or am doing. Uh, you can do that either just by supporting the film on the Paid in Blood page, or uh, I have a couple of prints on there. Um, they're all black and white prints. Most of them were shot on film, uh, which if you go and purchase, uh, all of the funds from that are being used to, to help for the post-production process, the coloring, the sound design, the scoring, uh, and all the other people that I, that I need to pull in to help make this as good as possible. But you can see that in prints on the website as well, and I will stick the links in the description. Lindsay, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Where in the world am I speaking to you from? Well, thank you for having me. And you are reaching me today in Clearwater, British Columbia, which is well, um, yeah, the interior of BC. Uh, I guess maybe your your listeners would know where Vancouver is, and it's yep. about four hours east, so okay. right in the middle of the province. Um, I've always wanted to go to BC. It's one of those places that oh. has a, a magical mysticism about it, uh, I think I, maybe for people who haven't been. <laughs> yeah, and especially if you're uh, if you're into adventuring <laughs> and mm. any sort of outdoor stuff that you know totally. it's a, you can't you can't beat it. Really? How long have you, are you from there or did you move there? No, I'm from a province in Canada called Alberta. Um, and I've actually, I've lived all over the country and I ended up in BC after getting my master's. Um, I I got a job doing oral history out here. And so this is what brought me to the interior about five years ago. And I just ended up really loving it. So I actually... Um, I stuck around and found a little house in the woods. Sounds so. ideal. That sounds like yeah. my kind of place. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have a, I have a little house on the edge of the mountains, so it's kind of similar in Scotland. Yeah, but. yeah. I so, mean, you uh, know, in at winter, it is a logistical challenge, to be honest. But uh, it is it's a lovely place to live. Well, I'm looking at the amount of snow that's falling outside my window right now, and I'm wondering if my plans for uh, the end of the weekend are going to happen or not. Oh, where were you going? What were you going to do? Oh, just uh, I wanted to go up one of, one of the glens and go hiking, yeah. which could be could be equally as fun, but um, if the roads are open, yeah, make sure you've got make sure you've got uh, good grips on your shoes. This is important. Now, you yeah. said 
oral history. Is that the study of oral history? Um, well, I was or actually just doing... unpack that a little. Sure. Yeah. So I, um, to, to get to the nub of it for me, I, I worked as a journalist after my undergrad degree for about close to 10 years. And then I, I identified that I had this real interest in environmental history. And so I went back to school to get my, to get my master's uh, in environmental history at the University of St. Andrews. Scotland. Oh, really? That's yep. just down the road from me. Yes, it is. I bet. Um, oh, okay. And so uh, when I was there, I had this really wonderful advisor, um, you know, because I was a mature student, uh, you know, he was he was really helpful with me kind of talking me through the, the history field in, mm. in academia in a way. And he said, you should look into oral history. I think you'd like it. You know, it's it, it ties into what you liked about journalism, which was interviewing people. Um, but you know, it, it, it's a methodology within the world of history. Ah, okay. Um, and so, uh, I decided to do my dissertation as an oral history and that's, you know, I spent quite a bit of time in Shetland and, and traveling around Scotland, interviewing former Antarctic whalers for that. Um, I'm fascinated about that. Yeah. And so so what was your, what was your dissertation on? It was on their experiences of the end of the whaling industry. So, um, wow. well, I should yeah, have spoken and- to you like two months ago because <laughs> I've just written a piece about modern whaling out of Norway and I, I covered think- a lot of the history. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, very, uh, very uh, overlapping in, in ways with Shetland, I think. Um, yeah. You know, I know that. Um, a lot of the a lot of the British uh, companies that were that were doing whaling in the Antarctic in the nineteenth nineteen sixties when the industry was really ending, they were staffing their boats, you know, from Shetland and Norway. That was yep. that was it. And a lot of the uh, Shetlanders that I interviewed, they speak Norwegian. You know, they might uh, identify in a certain way with that Nordic culture. Um, so I, I went up there and I was doing interviews and and kind of. What I liked about it was I was, you know, you do, you're focusing on the past as opposed to um, hard hitting interviews about what's happening right now. (laughs) Um, But you can often see the connection, I suppose, between what somebody experienced in the past and and how they're approaching today's issues. Um, And so I was, I was just blessed. I got to spend time doing that. And then I came back to Canada just because had to, um, you know, for work reasons. And I got an oral history job on a on a land use study in BC. And so uh, moved moved out here and and started doing interviews for that. Um, and that that's how that came to be for me. And now I kind of work in research and in, in that realm. And we're going to go from whaling to talking about your book and trees just in yeah, the moment. It is actually kind of it is kind of all related, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, I, I, w- I wanted to ask you a, 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 just a side note on that because I've gone back to university. I'm not finished my master's yet, but I'm busy mm-hmm. studying my master's in uh, biodiversity and conservation. Mm. And it, it's something that I thought about doing for quite a few years, but always yeah. put it off because it feels like such a mammoth task to be doing that as uh, in very a mature student. I don't yeah. feel that old, but <laughs> but there's a lot of people yeah. who go and do masters later in life because it is the thing that they are fascinated and driven by. Yes. And for me it's been a it's been a much uh, more enjoyable experience even though I've been fitting it in amongst 
the rest of my life without really dialing back anything. So it's been way busier than when I did my undergrad, but mm. I've enjoyed it infinitely more. What was that experience like for you? And I'm thinking, I'm asking you that question, thinking in my mind that there might be people listening who's like, I've always wanted to go in to like sort of take that leap, what you would say to yeah. them. Oh, man. Um, so I knew that I didn't want to go get my master's until it was something I was certain, certain, certain that I wanted to study. Um, and it took me a while to determine what that was, uh, first of all. But uh, I mean, it was a, not to sound too hyperbolic, I guess, but it was like one of the best things I've ever done in my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it it remains like a very important part of who I am uh, and and made me feel confident in my intuitions, you know, um, it made me passionate and fired up and motivated. And um, because you're a bit older and a little bit more solidified in yourself, you know, I had, um, I felt more confident than I did in my undergrad. Because I knew what I was there for. I also knew it was only a year. And so I was like hyper focused, right? Um, because I thought this is it, this is my year to to kind of buckle down and do it. Uh, and it felt really good to commit myself entirely to that. Yeah. Um, and the, and the outcome, you know, it felt earned in a way. Like I was like, yeah, I, I put my whole self into that. It was also very hard and I don't want to put that aside. It was hard. Uh, like I hadn't been graded in 10 years. And that it's was scary, hard, isn't it? Actually. I was <laughs> to like, be marked I on your work. Yeah, I hadn't had a numerical value placed on my, on my products <laughs> in, in a very long <laughs> Other time. Than money. Yeah. yeah, precisely. And there's a little bit of like, when it comes to money, you can kind of, uh, it feels less personal sometimes, yeah, but yeah, this, exactly. you know, you know, you're really raw. Uh, and so that was difficult and I had to learn a whole new academic style. Um, you know, for me, I, uh, my partner and I had done a working holiday in Scotland many years before, and I, I knew that I wanted to go back there. I knew that my interests were, were, were highly aligned with a lot of the issues that were historically prevalent and, and important in Scotland, but also, um, uh, contemporary contemporarily discussed at the same time so for me that was really exciting there was nothing uh literally nothing wrong with that i was so happy to be there um so yeah i mean it was it was a turning point for me i i highly recommend it to anyone and the age thing it you know i brought it up so clearly it was important but it also wasn't i had a really good relationship with my advisor um and i do think that that might come with a certain bit of experience in the outside world that you know what you're doing and you're really open to hearing their feedback, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I think you can, I'm certainly learning a lot more from the experience. And I found actually on the course that I'm on, I would say most most people that I'm interacting with in, in group discussions or whatever are older than 30. Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. So mm. it, it, because there's still a lot of people who are, because it's, it's not a, f well, it can be a full-time program where you just do the the year and a half and get it okay. done. But they also give you the flexibility to, because they know a lot of people who do the course that I'm doing, carry on doing field work. 
okay. to be able yeah. to take complete units and then miss a unit out and then pick it up the following year, which is mm. what I've ended up having to do because of projects. And so uh, I think it it uh, attracts people later on in their career who are just mm. trying to be better at what they do. Yes, that's exactly. I mean, that to me was... Uh, you know, I I wanted to be better, <laughs> uh, yeah. and that was my guiding motivation. Even when it got really hard, right? Was like, oh, growing and getting better sucks sometimes, <laughs> and, but it makes it a lot easier to keep pushing. So, um, and how did you find yeah. that feed into your um, what once you sort of came out of the academic system? Because, yeah. like you alluded to, that there is a certain way of doing things. You need to present. Um, papers or things that you yeah. are that are being graded in a certain style format that is what is required of you but then mm -hmm. taking that and taking it into a form that your average person on the street wants to read can mm -hmm. for some people actually be quite a big jump for me it was kind of the other way around because yes I've done, and i guess it was probably for you as well because you're about the same actually 10 yeah. years writing for your average person to read mm -hmm. and then going back into an academic system and then being able to take that knowledge and hopefully be able to put it in a way that you can explain complicated matters in a more understandable way. What was yeah. that process for you, like coming back out, completing your master's and then going back into, uh, well, I'm assuming you went back into journalism, did you? Given that you have a book. Um, no, I I, I, uh, I took a job uh, kind of in cultural heritage. And so I did shift oh, right. my, I shift my day job work anyway. So the oral history job um, that I did, it was about an eight month contract and it was uh, contributing to a sort of technical report, I suppose. Um, and then after that, I, uh, um, I, I kind of took on contracts here and there. I think, um, you know, I worked as an archivist at a, at a local museum and, I, and then I worked as a kind of a grant administrator in cultural heritage. Um, and so f for me, like you're saying, it was the opposite. So I wasn't coming out of a highly academic background and then trying to learn to parlay that knowledge into, uh, simple writing. Um, I knew that when I went to get my master's that I had wanted to, I wanted to learn like how to be rigorous in a way that the speed of producing for magazines and newspapers, you just can't be. Um, and so that's yeah, totally. what I ended. Yeah. And so I just, that's what I ended up applying to, to this book um, was, you know, I knew that I, I had the skills to draw out a, to find a through line narrative. Um, but I wanted the historical part to be, you know, it isn't written in academic style. It isn't cited in academic style, but if you go into the, into the notes of the book, you know, it is, I did spend a lot of time doing the research and I wanted that to be apparent because I was really nervous about pushback <laughs> basically of people saying, you know, this isn't as big of a deal or it isn't as culturally as important as this writer's making it out to be. And I wanted to make sure that my points were backed up. Um, so that was, that was the, the kind of big, the big thing for me when I, when I started turning this into a book. 
Um, yeah, was, and I know it, yeah. it's hard to balance that and not put people off because if you yeah. have a bunch, <laughs> if you have things uh, referenced, even if it's just with you know numbers and reference at the back of the book, it can be a little daunting. And yeah. Or if you put like a whole, I've seen some books where there's just hordes of footnotes everywhere <laughs> and you feel like yes. you have to keep going back and forward, back and forward, otherwise you don't fully understand yeah. what's going on. And there's a very delicate balance between doing exactly what you're saying, which is that if people want to check in the check into something in particular more, they can. Uh, and it also, in my mind, when I'm putting together pieces like, 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 the, like the whaling story that I mm -hmm. just wrote, um, it is, I, I get some comfort in the fact that I'm able to um, sort of lean on, lean on the science and the papers of things that have been reviewed by other yes. people. Yes. And at least point people in that direction. Yeah. And if it's later exactly found it. out to be wrong, at least I did my due diligence. Like yes. nothing is perfect. Yes. No, I, I fully, I fully agree because you know I deal with a lot of, um, uh, like I suppose sociology in a way. Um, and so I was, I was nervous about um, putting too much. Like people perceive things in different ways. And so I wanted to make sure that studies had been written that echoed what my sources and my interviews were telling me. Um, not that I don't think that people's recollections and experiences aren't valid in their own right. But I knew that I'd be taking a risk to just put out uh, an individual's experience without any sort of backing up that this is common or or had been heard mm. before, you know, yeah. um, particularly I mean, because those protagonists or antagonists, depending on how you look at it, you know, they could, they're a lot of people would really disagree with them. So yeah, which and mm -hmm. I think it's important um, to relay people's experiences and what they express to you. Because it is their opinion or view, however it is being shaped. But underlying that as the, as a journalist, you have to caveat it with this is their experience, and then yeah. this is the rest of the world. And whether you're able to um, form a form an opinion about it yourself, you're at least allowing the reader to know that you can't take this by itself. It has to be taken exactly. in, in the broader context. And, and that's, that's, that's it's difficult. It's really difficult it's, to do without part without imparting any of your own biases on it, which we all yeah. have. And I desperately try to at least acknowledge what they are in yeah. myself. I mean, I think that's probably all you can really do is as impartial as we try to be when putting together a good piece of journalistic writing. Oh, yeah. It's so hard. And actually, I think sometimes uh, academic oral history is a lot better at that because they'll just have a they'll have a literature review or methodology methodology section that lays out like, you know, here's here's the historical record around this. And then what I'm presenting to you is this person's memories flawed and yep. un and perfect in their own way. Um, yeah, like and when you're writing a story that can be really different, uh, you know, like you, you're not going to just have that aside really um, when you're trying to kind of keep the reader engaged. And, and so it is a bit more difficult, um, but that's, that's something I love about oral history is that it's just inherent in the practice that actually, actually memories being flawed is like part of the reason why you do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so how did, how did you come about 
beginning process of writing your book, which I have in my hand here, Tree mm. Thieves? Yeah, I, um, you know, it started originally back in, in 2012. There was a, a cedar uh, poached from a park on Vancouver Island. It was 800 years old. It was pr technically protected. And uh, there was a short news story about it that came out on our CBC, which is the Canadian version of the BBC. And at the time I was writing for magazines. And so I thought, oh, well, this will be a great magazine story because I can shadow the park rangers and I can uh, interview the RCMP, which is the the kind of local police detachment. <clears throat> and I'll, I'll stitch together this narrative. Maybe I'll go to some mills. And then when I started reporting it out, I, you know, it became apparent that that wasn't going to happen. But it wasn't it wasn't going to happen, not because it wasn't a story or like not because it wasn't there, but because it was so complicated. And and I had park rangers saying to me, this happens all the time. We never catch these people. We think we know who they are, but it's basically impossible to catch someone after they felled a tree. And I'm thinking, I mean, this tree was massive. <laughs> how is this impossible, you know? Um, and how is this happening in North America? Yeah, exactly. Um, because we think of that, in my mind, when I first, you know, without reading any context of your book, mm. just the title, and then I obviously dug through it and read it. Um, when I'm thinking about the poaching of timber, which I think most people don't realize, I think this is still true, this stat, is it is the most illegally trafficked uh, it is the most illegally trafficked thing in the world is timber. It's yes. not It's not any yeah. species of wildlife um, no. from mammals as pangolin, but timber is the most illegally trafficked yes. thing in the world. But we think of Central Africa and we think of deep South America. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, you understand the political systems and unstable countries and how that is maybe possible. But you mm -hmm. don't think that. I, I, I was shocked. And if you skip through to like the pictures in the middle of your book and you're seeing national parks that people know like yeah. you will know the names of these and that is happening like under our noses yeah yeah and so yeah when i started reporting it out i that that captivated me and then i was also thinking i was interviewing uh at first uh investigators and rangers and then sociologists because those investigator investigators and rangers were then talking to me about social issues, you know, like it very quickly became about um, broader sort of cultural concerns. Um, and they were saying, you know, this, this is way more common than you think. Uh, it happens on all sorts of levels. And the motivation is often like, sure, it's money, but it's also uh, um, related to, to kind of the decline of an industrial region, uh, the 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 sort of descent into poverty of a lot of these small towns that were industrial towns in you know through the mid twentieth century, and then uh, when things uh, when things took a turn uh, for various reasons, you know they've never really recovered, and there's a whole population of people that are that are that are in these towns that are dealing with this now. Um, and so that's when I knew that it could become a book at the same time. I was also reading a lot of history around poaching because someone in I interviewed, 
in general. And someone I interviewed said, you know, like there's so much, there's so much kind of cultural uh, significance to poaching. You should look into that. And so I got really into, you know, hmm. reading about the tradition of poaching as from the, the establishment. And and, yeah. Yeah. Totally old ancient English and, and British history and um, charter of the forest. Can and, you can you expand on stuff. that a little bit? Because yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that uh, that that you know so much of that really comes back to it, just south of me here. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. It comes back to the UK, the 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 original um, p- people who poached and why they did it. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So because it wasn't I, like I, you're saying now. It's like it wasn't just about food and feeding people. No, no, it was a, it was a, a response, right? A, a response to a sort of um, enclosures and taking away of of a way of life. So, um, yeah, when I started reading reading into this, you know, it very quickly became about about the history of the commons um, and the history of sort of working communities and and rural working communities and and their relationship to the land and and eventually who owns and controls that land. And so I I ended up reading through through a book uh I'm going to want to remember this guy this person's name. So uh I I read Guy Standing's book Plunder of the Commons and and he wrote quite a bit in there about this document called the Charter of the Forest and it's kind of the Magna Carta's lesser known sibling. Uh it was at one point it was read aloud four times a year uh in in kind of common areas. And it essentially protected commoners access to fruits and and processes within the forest itself. So, you know, it made provisions for commoners to uh, graze pigs or graze other animals to harvest certain pieces of wood for for livelihood purposes and to build homes and to start fires and make fences and all of this stuff. Um, and it's kind of, you know, been forgotten in a way, it, you know, that with the establishment of forests, as we think of them now, um, that the charter of the forest was essentially not followed at that point. Um, and so <clears throat> I write in the book that we think of forest, especially in North America, we think of forest as, uh, big wooded areas that people visit for recreational purposes, most likely, but forests uh, were originally parts of the countryside that were essentially enclosed or, or um, you know, I think the, the commoners would, would use the word taken uh, by aristocracy, uh, by the monarchy <clears throat> and powerful folk who wanted to preserve it for hunting purposes, uh, but not hunting for common use, hunting for for sort of uh, the privileged in a way, hunting yeah, it was for just sport, recreation, yeah. recreational use. Um, and this took away access from a lot of people and it created illegal act, you know, it, it essentially made hunting and fishing and taking of wood um, poaching. You know, until then it had been a subsistence activity, but uh, from then on, anytime that happened on this private land, you were breaking the law and you would be punished as such. And so often there were there were special court systems set up um, to to punish these <clears throat> these crimes. And um, in response, uh, there was a lot of 
poaching and and sort of running roughshod over these over these forests uh, at night by a lot of community members by yeah. a lot of which was of, mostly a screw you to the <laughs> absolutely to the yeah. i mean like uh, you know there are some examples in the book of sometimes deer being caught and not being taken off the land like that they were left there bloodied as a sign as a yeah. as a statement uh you know i think the black act uh, might be known to your uh listenership but um the blacks were these group of often men uh, who would kind of cover their faces in coal and run into these private land enclosures and, and cause property destruction at night. Um, you know, set things aflame, uh, poach deer. Uh, sometimes they would take the racks back as a sort of trophy. Um, and yeah, they were making a statement against the wealthy, I suppose, and, and saying, you know, this land is our land. Uh, yeah, that, you... that line, that mm-hmm. line between um, yeah, poaching and not poaching, being established then, but then, and, I, and not that I want to skip history because I want you to carry no, on no. your story, but no. um, we see those parallels. There's a really great book called Gardeners of Eden. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's called, no, uh, but I'm going to look it up. It's um, Graham... Alistair Graham is a name. It's long out of print, but it's you can find secondhand copies of it. And he talks a lot about the history that you've just you've just discussed now. But he's paralleling it to his experience in um, East Africa in mm. like the sixties and seventies, and how <clears throat> poaching became a thing literally overnight because of land ownership. And 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 not that it well I suppose it kind of was it was the crown at the time because it was if we're talking about Kenya it, it, that was under British rule and so it, it was then property of the crown so exactly the same thing that you're talking about now but yeah. you're talking about that hundreds of years ago was yeah, happening all- in in the sixties uh, or even before that um, in the kind of modern era on the same basis. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, that um, in, in academic circles, that has a term now called fortress conservation. And the idea being that um, large chunks of land are are basically uh, seconded off and kept to, you know, I, I don't know whatever word you want to use for this. I know it's, but, you know, kept quote unquote wild um, and humans are not allowed in it. And it's only for animals and, and plant life. Um, and what ends up happening is often, uh, particularly these days, um, indigenous communities are displaced. Mm. Uh, Even you know, right communi- now, that still happens. And I think a lot of people yeah, don't oh, appreciate yeah. that's happening time. like as we speak yeah. in the establishment yeah. of national parks and protected reserves. It, this isn't something that just happened you know, when um, the UK was colonizing the world. No. <laughs> this, like, this is happening today, but it's happening under a different flag. Yes. That's exactly it, and uh, and and it happens. You know, this is the case. Uh, uh, the the case for a lot of the history of science and and the history of sort of environmental management. But it happens under the umbrella of conservation, uh, which is seen as always good, right? I mm. mean, it has a very good reputation. Um, but the 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 sort great of marketing down of, <laughs> that's been done. Great marketing. Yeah. I mean, who hates a national park, right? I mean, it's hard. I yeah. don't. I love parks, but at the same no. time, and we love the access we get to them. Mm-hmm. But we weren't the people removed from them. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like you're saying, this is a very contemporary, remains contemporary, and 
you know, happened throughout history. And so when I'm writing in my book about um, folks who poach redwood trees and and poach burl, burr from redwood trees, um, that park was established in 1968. Um, and a lot of a lot of people that poach now will tell you that they are poaching in response to the park itself. Um, and so Sure, that was 60 years ago, <laughs> almost. Wow. They must be pretty uh, old now, the people who are doing it, if it was in response no, to the establishment of the park. <laughs> what I think is interesting is it's often their their children, their ah, nephews. So it's been passed down. It's been passed. The uh, the sort of anger around this this park uh, is, is being passed down through narrative, right? Through storytelling. And um, it's often not always based in fact you know there's a lot of uh hyperbole used around what the park did or didn't do and the the motivations of the park but almost beside the point really for for the people that i'm spending that i spend time with in the book it's uh it it contributes to this kind of broader conception of how people see them in their world and in the in the country so how did you how did you go about gaining the trust of people to be able to tell that part of the mm-hmm. sort of the modern part of the story? Yeah, I it's a good question and um a few people have asked me and I I always end up saying that I don't so so poaching had been often covered in the media in short news stories. Um I actually got the impression when I got there that nobody had ever asked a poacher (laughs) to interview for an interview. Um, And so the fact that I asked, I think, uh, just opened up doors for me. Um, But how did you go about finding them in the first place? Because the nature of poaching is it's quite secretive and they don't want to get caught because they're doing an illegal activity. That's right. So, um, you know, I started off with cases that had already entered the court system. Uh, so I knew names from from just police blotters, right? So y- y- sometimes local newspapers will will run those those police updates and and headshots or or mugshots, I guess, saying so and so arrested for poaching burl. Uh, and so I started there. I went to this town called Oric because there were quite a few people from Oric who had been appearing in those police reports. And it's a very small town. I I feel very comfortable in small towns because I grew up in one. And so I uh, I went to the the sort of main drag, <laughs> I suppose. And uh, First of all, I knew I would be doing a lot of life history interviews with people around the town. So I started there. You know, I started saying, listen, I'm writing about this topic. I want it to be more broadly about the town and the region and the park and the the difficulties with conservation. Um, And then we would often do our interview. And then I'd say, you know, do you think that Derek Hughes would want to talk to me? Do you know where I would be able to find him? And it took not even a day. You know, for people to say, well, <laughs> particularly in this one area, I mean, everyone's related, right? So um, they would l- literally, I did one interview and then someone s- pointed to the back of a room where there was a, a janitor cleaning and they said, yeah. that's his ex-wife, <laughs> you know? And so, <laughs> and she drink was really at the local nice. bars in small towns and you'll probably yeah. find everybody that you need to Pretty know. Pretty much. Yep. Um, but I have to say there was not a lot of 
uh, reticence. And I, you know, I maintain that um, a lot of people just had not been asked hmm. their opinion and their thoughts. And I, um, I was just, I was also really open. I didn't have any um, narrative that I, that I was presenting through the interview process. I just let the interviews go where they went. I often started by asking about their families rather than, you know, why did you do this crime? <laughs> um, <laughs> because people are proud of their families and, and it, that's a big part of this story, right? Is connection and to work and location. So, yeah. And then so, once I started interviewing people, you know, I and other people were talking about it in the town. It kind of snowballed. Okay, so you had people. It didn't. It wasn't difficult once you no. sort of broke the water to yeah start getting more people yeah. willing. And I guess I guess word of mouth and probably was a bit of trust being built there, whether you realized Precisely. it or not at the time, yeah. just because of the conversations you'd had. Yeah. So how? Um, Given that there's part, I mean, obviously, <laughs> some of the people have been quite unsuccessful because they've been caught. But um, <laughs> given that there's park rangers and it's it's a, a very, there's an established system of authority in these national parks. And there's lots of people yeah. around. How yeah. were these poachers going about doing it, extracting huge trees? And then yeah. where were they selling it? Because yeah, I know of the black markets in Congo, where I've been, and in South America, but you don't necessarily think of black markets for timber in mm. Canada or the U.S. Yeah, so, you know, part of that depends on the species of tree and then also the region that you're in. So I can give kind of two examples. Um, where I live in B.C., Douglas fir is poached a lot. Um, and these are often, they might not be old growth yet, but they're often on the, on the brink. So to be old growth in BC, you need to, the tree needs to be 250 years old. Um, often they are, you know, right up budding up against that. Um, and I mean, in the lifespan of a tree, 50 years is not much actually. Um, and so they're really massive. Um, often they are cut down at night. Um, in one case, that I think is indicative of other, other cases. The tree is kind of felled. You'd pick a tree that's maybe 500, 500 meters off um, the, uh, the side of a road uh, and you'd fell it towards the road so that it kind of crossed over it. And then you would, right there, you would uh, buck it up into smaller rounds and load it into the back of a truck. So you're not, in the case of a Douglas fir or a maple, in particular, you're not transporting the trunk whole. You would do the work right there to uh, to turn it into portable pieces. Um, often, Douglas fir is being sold for firewood, uh, which is um, a very wow. common yeah fire. It's, it just doesn't seem worth your while <laughs> right, to go well, to that risk <laughs> for firewood because I mean yeah. firewood. The, the value of firewood is it's it's nothing. You know, relatively speaking, that's not. Yeah. I'm not going to risk going to prison to go and steal mm. some firewood and sell it. I think like, yeah, there's, there's two kind of responses to that. Um, the first is that uh, firewood has increasingly in BC become more expensive okay, over the this years. Is particularly, Same here. <laughs> yeah. Particularly yeah. in the, in the Southern mainland of the province, which is uh, tends to be the wealthier kind of more populated part. And so one, one interview I did um, the, uh, the investigator for it, who, who, 
was a provincial kind of park ranger. He told me that he had heard of um, intermediaries essentially buying firewood for, let's say, a cord for, I don't know, $500, $600, and then turning it around and selling it for 1000 in the lower oh, right. Okay, so, so there, you know there's it's quite not, a profit margin to be made. There is, if you yeah, got enough volume, yeah, pre- precisely. And then I think an, another um, another element of this is that, and this is something that I had to to go through myself, is that you know five hundred bucks is is not a lot. Uh, in terms of the risk for me, uh, but for uh, other people, it it is really worth it. Um, yeah, and that's, so it's all relative, I suppose. Yeah. Exactly, and uh, there is there's this really strong link, unfortunately, uh, between timber poaching and and drug use in in rural Pacific Northwest. Okay, and so if you are someone who um, struggles with with drug addiction or, or drug misuse in any way, um, five hundred dollars is is pretty good for a night's worth of work. Um, and yeah, I'm sure that you, buys it, some uh, <laughs> the yep, next batch of drugs probably yeah, precisely. Um, and in fact, uh, one in one case, um, there was a dealer in the re- in that same region who would take wouldn't even take money. He would just take the wood, uh, and and then do his own dealing of the wood no for money. Way. Yeah, so, so he's trading um, drugs for wood. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's the value of that, I suppose. There are other ways that it's being used. So, for instance, uh, live edge tables um, are really, really popular, obviously, around here. And Douglas fir is a good species for that. So in some cases, the, uh, the wood was going right to artisans uh, or right to even small mills and being manufactured right there um, and sold sold to people who might not even know to ask if the if the wood is local or or where it came from um so there are a few there are a few ways to to do it um in general it the the issue is um that we have so much forested land it's very difficult to even find um the stump of a post poached tree to know what you're looking for and by that point a mill may have been able to sell it to a manufacturer uh, or you know it's entered the system actually quite quickly um, and so then you don't have the stolen material to match to the crime site um, so how yeah. how have they like what kind of forensics and investigations mm-hmm. have been going on to try and catch people and is, yeah. and is it a concerted effort or is it so small scale that the authorities are like they've got a million other things that they could also be doing yeah. rather than a handful it, of trees? It's kind of both. I mean, it's certainly been on the uh increasingly on the radar of the management authorities. Um so, you know, in in British Columbia where I am in recent years, the um the resource officers is is what we would call them uh up here. They uh they've been provided bulletproof vests and they've been um trained in in how to use pepper spray and in hand-to-hand combat because of uh forest crime is on the rise so you know it's certainly yeah it's uh it's considered to be a pretty consistent crime it it's not as flashy dollar wise i suppose as others might be um but you know there was a study um in redwoods national park uh in the early 
early 2013, I think, uh, where they were they were dealing with so much poaching that they that they did a study to kind of figure out what was going on here. And they found that in the span of a couple of years, more than a hundred trees had been either poached or or burls poached off of them. Um, so it is it's not a rash of crime uh, in the way that you might think of maybe so it's not like old growth logging that's happening in the Amazon. No. It's not no, on that it kind isn't. of scale. No, but I mean it is logging of a tree that is protected. Yeah. Um because old growth we we still have groves groves of old growth in in my province in particular that are that are legal to log. Um uh in some cases uh Particularly in Washington State, there was a case where there was so much maple being poached from one part of a park. They called it the slaughterhouse. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it was just basically an entire grove being picked off one by one uh, by someone who had found this spot and realized that it wasn't being patrolled. Hmm. So, yeah. Does this feed in at all on a more international context when we think about illegal logging? Where does this fit into that that hierarchy mm. or is it not connected at all is there because i know for some species of tree it's it's a global market precisely yeah and so no i mean it's not um it would be misleading to to maybe say that this is um on par with the poaching of acacia trees for instance from southeast asia uh or or species from the rainforest in brazil i mean those are those are forests that are being cut down en masse illegally and entering the system through through kind of international trade rings and stuff like that, um, or even Eastern Europe now um, because of sanctions in, in Russia um, and Ukraine. A lot of that, a lot of that wood is now entering entering our consumer market. Oh, I didn't, um, I hadn't heard anything or read anything about that. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I'm working on something about it right now. <laughs> oh, wow, <laughs> so, okay. Um, just because, um, well, anyway, it's complicated and, and we can we can get into it, but due to, due to sanctions, um, making it illegal to manufacture uh, furniture or, or items that might make it into our home from wood from Russia, mm-hmm. that wood is now being uh, exported in, with incorrect labels. Uh, uh, I think okay. in one case, I one case I read the the label said it was from Finland, uh, but but actually, which is no. right next door, and it's probably the same forest. Yep, block exactly, <laughs> exactly. Border, yeah, I mean they yeah. they they are a huge or were uh, a huge exporter of timber products because it's such a yeah. massive country. Exactly. And they grow great yeah. timber like, along yeah. with the Scandinavian countries. For sure. And it's also uh, particularly, obviously, in the eastern part of the uh, of the country, easy to export to China, right? Which is the leader, leading manufacturer of wooden furniture in the world. Mm. So, not, not that I think there'll be sanctions that way around. I don't think there are any. China. <laughs> that's a good point yeah yeah but um, yeah for the rest of europe i i mean we you know we yeah. think that it's it's fuel and gas and that that we've been talking about mm. the whole time but of course yeah timber as well which is what, yeah. probably why we've seen uh well yeah absolutely our timber prices here which must be connected have gone through the roof in the last yes year. indeed and i mean I, anyway speaking of all of this i'm i'm also working on a piece about how there's been increased firewood poaching from european forests because of uh the price of the the sort of energy crisis and the Absolutely. cost of living crisis um and people turning toward traditional methods of 
of heat and then trying to to source the materials for that, which I think is really fascinating because I mean, I one thing I took away from reporting this book is the importance of traditional craft in a way and and the importance of actually maybe seeking out furniture that is or items that are made from wood that is locally harvested by someone who who knows what they're doing and loves what they're doing and um and can contribute to the economy in that way um and uh, firewood is part of that i think and charcoal production for instance is part of that but uh um it it's an issue of affordability anyway it's kind of neither here nor there, <laughs> but, uh, no, but it's interesting though. Yeah. yeah that's happen- that's it, like, that's happening now and it's happening around us. Even if we don't, I mean, I heat my absolutely. house with wood, but I don't steal the wood. I, I have permission from where right. I cut but, the wood but, down and it comes from thin forest. But I, yeah. I have that connection. I've always had that connection where it's my hands that heat my house mostly. Precisely. And like, um, you know what I have to say? people returning to that. Yeah. And I'd have to say that there's, you'd have that immensely in common with a lot of the people I interviewed who also poach, right? So um, a lot of folk are being fined for poaching wood uh, that they're using to heat their own homes. And I, you know, I've done a few interviews, Byron, with with other media where you can tell that people are surprised that people are still uh, using wood to heat their homes. To heat their but homes. Like, oh, really? But like rurally, <laughs> it's so common. It's and so like common. It, yeah. yeah. And it feels a little bit, frankly, like at first I would be frustrated and I'd feel like, you know, you're being condescending. Like people use wood all the time, but I've had to really come to terms with the fact that this is an urban rural divide actually, um, that you might not think that people are still doing that. But I mean, my neighbors, some of my neighbors down the road don't have, don't have enforced air heating <laughs> or yeah, whatever, it's, you know? It's, so, and I'll give you an an example that's just happened, I think it was last year or the year before, of how disconnected our politicians are mm-hmm. from, the from I would argue, the real world, but certainly the yeah. rural world. Yeah. In the, the um, council-owned buildings, so, um, you know, people who, who stay in, in buildings of, that are owned by the government, essentially, uh, up just north of me about an hour, so still fairly rural area, they started a process of taking out or blocking up all of the fireplaces in all mm. of these, and this was this was a drive for um, ticking off climate change and emissions. Not that most of these fires were ever being used anyway, because most of them were open fires, which are not particularly efficient compared to wood burning yeah. stoves. Yeah. But it, it meant that, from a council and government point of view, they could tick those boxes because it was something that was not going to be emitting, or at least it was. Um, they can't calculate that, so at least it was something that didn't exist anymore. And then we had two of the worst storms in 100 years uh, last winter, where some of those areas lost power for two weeks. Yeah. No Mm. heating. Fortunately, that happened before they had started or just at the point where they were starting to take those fireplaces out and block them in. So those people were able to get firewood from somewhere, even if it wasn't something they normally did, and stay Mm -hmm. warm and, and frankly, stay alive. Yep, and now they've reversed. In some places, they've reversed those um, the, uh, the 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 government scheme to close up those fireplaces yeah. because they realize how utterly ridiculous it is to have a have a have a, a rural area that can't fend for itself for survival. Yeah, yeah. and oh man, and I mean, just that disconnect is just in, like in Nor in Norway, 
It, I think it's I, I might I don't want to misspeak here. I don't know if it's on all mm. of Norway, but certainly in the northern parts of Norway, it's a legal requirement to have two heat sources in your house. Interesting for that very reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, any. <laughs> Anyway, you can't see me, but I'm I'm nodding fervently <laughs> because this is something I I think about all the time, you know. And um, it, it I think there are some very interesting debates around uh, sort of climate change mitigation policy and and what what works and and what doesn't and what's actually culturally relevant and what isn't um, and. I don't have any answers, but I think that that's a really that's a really good example of something that would also really upset, I think, a lot of local people. Part of what I was interested in in, in reporting tree thieves was how um, how anger spread uh, and mm. and remained in a region, yeah. yeah, and how distrust for government and government agencies. Um, is strengthened through kind of poor policymaking. Yep. Um, and that's an example of that, right? It and is, that's yeah. something that people are going to remember. Um, For sure. They, and like, yeah. I even feel it because I see about, I, I, I see, and not that I've paid much attention to it in the last year, and I'm not sure exactly where this regulation's going. Maybe they've decided to bin it. But there was discussions, and you see it in in the papers and on the radio, about them banning wood-burning stoves, particularly in yeah. built-up areas. Uh, or any kind of fire. So this is this is separate to the government-owned buildings. This is private-owned buildings. You're not allowed to have a fire in your house. And this is all for. And don't get it's. I'm not sitting here as somebody as anybody who listens to this podcast denying any, uh, as a climate change denier or not wanting no, to make the planet yeah. a better place. But the reality is that really pissed me off because I'm thinking, oh, well, yeah. come to my house, my little cottage yeah. in the in the hills, and explain to me how I'm going to heat my house and afford to heat my house if I can't go out into the forest on a, mm -hmm. a farm that um, I happen to know the farmer who's yes. kind enough to let me take timber that is from thin forest anyway. So I'm not doing any, yes. in fact, we're doing the, the forest a favor. And then I'm heating yeah. my house with that. Like explain to me what is wrong fundamentally with that. But it's just broad also, sweeping, you know, broad brush oh, reg, uh, legislation to try and fix a problem, which- yeah. And explain to me why angry. <laughs> and it does. And explain yes, and explain to me also for a lot of people why it's better that I heat my house from imported, unsustainable fossil fuels. Yep. Then do you know? Yep. Like, and then when when international instability comes around, then that's very expensive, or in some cases, like taken away and not available. Yep. Um, and here I am; I'm not allowed to like coppice. You know, it's like crazy. it just seems. And and this is something too that I that I came away with, with from tree thieves, which is that. You know, and and maybe this is personal, uh, just for me, but why? I think I I think when I first started researching this, I I figured I would be completely on the side of the park rangers and mm -hmm. and all of this. But I came away thinking, you know, why is it okay for me to have deck furniture made of teak that is technically legally harvested? But if I bought like a really nice table made out of burl from Derek Hughes, that would be bad um and illegal. And but it's something that was handcrafted and I'll never have to buy again. Like I just, I ended up thinking a lot about like our globalized systems and morality. 
<laughs> and and not just in terms of sustainability, but like right and wrong, you know, um, and connection yeah. to our items as well um, and connection to the things that are in our home. So, I, I mean, it seems I to me know. that so much of um, the investigation uh, and, you know, what, a, what an intriguing piece of journalism that you pulled together in that in that Thank book. Thank you. Um, went from, or, or or most of it seems to stem back, and and I think this is particularly true, like of how we've extended this conversation in the last ten minutes, mm. because of social aspects of society, mm-hmm. and that seems to be at the foundation mm-hmm. of so much of this. Yeah, I think so, and you know, I think um, there's a there's a whole section of the book where we're talking about um you know, forensics that are being developed to try and match trees to stumps and DNA databases that border patrols can use to test the species of of uh, of a plywood plank, for instance. And all of that's really interesting. But if if you asked me kind of what's going to make poaching stop, it's like massive social change. Probably, you know, like I think at some points I've been maybe even a little bit uh, flippant with that and said, like, if you want to solve poaching, it's like we need to solve inequality (laughs) Um, and we need to solve sort of rural policy in particular and come around to um, to considering sort of the economies of rural areas and how we actually support them rather than just encouraging people to move on to new things. Um, and those are really hard, you know, and they're not done in two years, which I think is also kind of unfortunate. There's a real impatience that a lot of, uh, lawmakers and and stuff have around solving these things that, you know, if, if poaching as a response to, uh, to unfair policy has been going on for, you know, hundreds of years, it's going to take a really long time to undo that. to kind of undo it yeah mm. exactly so there's a a great contradiction that i see played out around the world um i mean I, I see it on my back doorstep here where the noises being made from government is we want to we we want to encourage people to go into the countryside and we want people to stay in rural areas but very as little, a tourist as a tour well this is the difference right right because yeah. it's it's way in in my mind my my cynical mind is it's way easier to control a population if they're in an urban center. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's far more difficult to have a handle on your population in terms of voting when they're spread out in lots of rural communities mm-hmm. because those communities have their their own views and they're they're not shaped by the the sort of yeah. the urban structure and flow that we've created in cities. Um, mm. But so many of the so many of the things I see played out in terms of legislation and regulation do nothing to encourage people to stay in the countryside whatsoever. No, no. I nothing mean, and we all. struggle. No, we struggle with that here. Like base level stuff of connectivity and you know internet, like um, access yeah, internet's to a great wireless. Example. Yeah, and it sounds you know when I first moved out here, I I was like, uh, it sounds so. Um, privilege to be complaining about the internet but i no I longer feel that way right like now i'm just like well this affects everything um I, I was listening to a podcast where somebody interviewed someone about rural connectivity and they were a farmer and they said all new tractors need to be like wi-fi 
uh, connected to Wi-Fi for certain things. And yeah. I had no idea. And I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, so um, these are huge issues. And often I feel people are disrespected on them, actually. Um, and, you know. Totally. You're so yeah. right. I mean, my 85-year-old farmer who lives a few hundred meters from me on the edge of this farm that I live on, he yeah. was telling me the other day. And that the internet where I live is... Uh, utterly terrible it was unusable mm-hmm. for me to work i used to drive yes. 40 minutes yeah. to my parents house to go and use internet that i paid for there because i could get yeah. better internet <laughs> until 12 God. months ago where i got starlink yeah. and it's totally yes. changed my life and welcome he, to my we're all the same on this because i <laughs> and i also don't want to give this guy like i don't want to give elon musk any money but every day i'm to. like i have to give that guy money like anyway it's changed. It's totally changed my life because my my yeah. poor farmer friend. He was telling me the other day that not only uh, have they made it now that um, all of our tax returns have to be done digitally. The internet's mm, not fast God. enough to load the digital form. His the farming subsidies that the that farmers get also has to be done completely online, which is impossible. Oh, this is just I could barely check email where I live before yeah. my Starlink. Yeah, that so, enrages me. Yeah, like what are you supposed? You know, what are you supposed to do? And the, the you know the the, your, the government promised rollout to rural areas, apart from the five percent or whatever it is by twenty thirty. But the five percent are the ones that need it most. Yep. Yeah. Um, but no, you can I've... see how it encourages. I mean, we're we're maybe a long way from uh, <laughs> we're a long way from um, timber poaching now. But you Not can really, see how though. that encourages people to do things out of desperation. Yes. Or and you move incur- back to the city and you vacate exactly. And I just. I, like a big part of tree thieves was reading the history of how people in these regions were told to up and move. Um, you know, it's like, well, if the industry died there, go somewhere else, follow the work, do what you like personal responsibility, go, you know, retrain, blah, blah, blah. Very little understanding of the fact that some people are so connected to where they live that that is not an option. Uh, or that, you know, they have responsibilities there. A lot of people inherit land and it literally is their family legacy. And so asking them to move is like really heartbreaking. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Exactly. Um, therefore, being able to stay because you have internet becomes really important, you know? Um, and, you know, you're talking about that and I'm thinking, about my own life experiences and then also how it all connects to like, you know, also defunding of libraries, one of the only places you can go to, you know, it just goes stay, on and right on. Right now, the only place you can go to stay warm. Yeah. <laughs> There's people yes. being going to libraries because of the cost of fuel, because yep. the, maybe they can't act, they don't have a fireplace and they can't go and steal some timber. <laughs> so they're right? going to a library to stay warm. I mean, that's yep. happening in supposed first world countries. Yeah. Yeah, uh, or and I think that countries. and like can, uh, that yeah. is just insane to me. Yeah, but the, and, that we've also had our ability to also look after ourselves stripped stripped from us. And yes. the example of national parks and you know what has facilitated a lot of what your book is about is a great example of that. Because I think about it all the time. I'm someone I I don't like. I like having my own agency. Um, and maybe some people will think I'm a bit of a prepper for what I'm about to say, but I'm absolutely not because that's not even really a thing in the UK. Um, but you know, I have my own generator for when the power goes out and I have a wood supply that'll see me through to spring and I can cook on my fires if I need to. I don't, and I have a, a, a bit of, because of, I live rurally and because 
fuel's been difficult to get hold of through periods in the last 12 months. Like I have mm-hmm. some fuel set aside in drums so that I can at least get out of here because I can't walk out or it's a long walk in the snow. I like having that sort of self-sufficiency, but the only reason that I can do a lot of those things is because I have access to timber and I and I, I know yes. people, rural community help. That's why I can do it. Most people don't have the agency to take care of themselves. When the lights go out, they're at the mercy of the authorities putting them back on again. Yep. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is, and what you're getting at there as well is a certain, um, it's it's like pride in self-sufficiency, it's need for self-sufficiency. It's also why a lot of people were so enraged about um you know, when we when we talk about transition, for instance, like transition away from natural resource economies and often what's offered to workers is um, a good ben- uh, a good sort of uh, retirement package or mm-hmm. like a good, uh, you know, maybe benefits for a couple of months. People actually don't want to take that. Right. Because for for generations, um, that self-sufficiency has been a point of pride and a point of like what sets you apart from others. And so being offered only benefits and only payout um, and told to retrain or go on welfare, or what have you, is is also very uh, insulting. Um, and so people would genuinely rather be a criminal and do work like physical work than uh, be seen as someone who's who's only taking and not contributing. I think that's a really deep-seated old uh, uh, value that goes all the way back to even what we were talking about with <laughs> Charter of the Forest Times, right? Yeah. Which is yeah. that you contribute. You're part of the commons. You are part of the community. Um, and actually taking work away fractures that a lot um and and not replacing it with work that is that is equally uh as skilled or respected is also part of that so it's it's very cultural fascinating yeah, yeah thank you so there's there's so many there's so many i mean there, there's so many places that my brain went when i was when i was reading your book and i think people listening to this podcast will gather that from how many tangents we've gone off on but yeah. they were, they're, they're all they're all interwoven and they're, and they're all connected and i would encourage yeah. anybody to go and um pick up who's enjoyed this conversation and i'm sure everybody is going to, to go and pick up a copy of your book uh, where can people Thank find you. it, Lindsay? Yeah, you can uh, you can find it pretty much anywhere you would buy books. It's at Waterstones. Um, it's on uh, the this in your indie local indie. Uh, you mm-hmm. can request it. It was published by Hodder and Stoughton in uh, June 2022, and you can find it online as well wherever you would buy books. But I always say uh, to support your local bookstore there. Uh, there is something amazing. to be said for a local bookstore. I do Indeed. enjoy if- that as a. That's, it's, it's almost like a, a little town trip for me. Is go to the bookstore. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, you know they uh, local bookstores have been really supportive of Tree Thieves, actually, which I really um, I really appreciate. So uh, you know, reach out to them, see if they can bring it in for you. They they, they almost certainly can. So, Lindsay, it's been a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you so much for sending me the book. Uh, I'm glad that we were able to connect because I know we, we kind of bounced back and forward over six months because I think you must have sent it to me straight, pretty much straight after it released. But then I was away for on and off for months. And now December, I just happened to be at my desk again and then we reconnected. So I'm oh, grateful my, for your patience. 
it's my pleasure. And in my opinion, uh, you read reading is reading whenever it happens. So I, I am not fussed about that. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to reading what you're up to next when eventually oh, you. you release it. Thank you. Thank you.